welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. So welcome everyone to this episode of the Philia podcast. My name is Sarah and I am one of the volunteers. And I'm here today with Stephanie Davies Arai of Transgender Trend, which is an organization that describes itself as a group of parents and professionals concerned about the current trend to diagnose gender non-conforming children as transgender. Stephanie, we are deeply honored and so happy that you've joined us for this Philia podcast, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Would you mind introducing yourself to any listeners who aren't already familiar with your very important voice in this area? Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Yes, very briefly, I've worked with parents for over 20 years and teachers. I teach communication skills and communications my area really uh, so I wrote a book called communicating with kids so my work is very based on what language we use how we talk to children what children understand from what we say to them and it was from that position that I began to have an interest in this area because I noticed there was actually a lot of stories in the media about trans children and they were totally uncritical and the parents were described as supportive and the children were brave. And I, as, as I've worked with parents for so long, I've heard everything. I've got four children of my own who are now all in their 20s. And I've, I've heard every story you could possibly imagine. And this was new. Never heard this one before. So I began to do some research into it. And I got more and more alarmed, really, by, by what I was seeing. And I wrote my first article about it because I wrote a weekly parenting blog at the time and thought, well, I, I have a responsibility to write about this subject because nobody else was touching it. And the response I got was so overwhelming. Grateful parents contacting me, didn't speak out because they'd be seen as bigots or transphobic. So that showed me that there was a need for some support for these parents. And also the parents had been looking online for support and all they found was trans groups who said, you must affirm that your daughter is a boy. You must affirm that your boy is, is now your daughter. And I felt that what parents needed was evidence-based information all in one place, one resource on, on the net. Because I do think parents have a right to see all the information. And also because I, I noticed that there was no voice of challenge in the media at that time. It was 2015 and I wanted to be that voice in the media and I knew they wouldn't contact me. I knew that I had to have, I, I had to be an organisation and I had to have a website and it worked. 
I was very quickly <laughs> consulted by the media. I was on Newsnight with Susie Green of Mermaids in 2016, and, and I quoted uh, all, all over the press and, and appeared on the radio, etc. I called the organisation Transgender Trend because parents were telling me that was the search term they were putting into Google. And in fact, I've learned since that some of the professionals that contacted me also found me that way. And parents are still finding me that way. I am still contacted by parents who put that search term into Google. I, so I called it that for that reason, but I was looking at more neutral names at the time, things like let kids be kids or, you know, which was taken. And when I look back, I think I wouldn't have had the impact that I had so quickly if I'd chosen a neutral name. But actually, the name does what it says on the tin. I am challenging this trend, particularly the upward trend of referrals of children to the Tavistock, particularly adolescents, teenage girls, autistic kids, lesbian and gay kids. That is exactly what I'm challenging. So the name does what it says on the tin. It challenges and, and also the fact that we're calling children transgender. We didn't do that before. So that's a recent, very, very recent trend. And one of the things I resist very strongly is the obfuscation of language that this whole transgender movement uses, the corruption of the meaning of words, euphemisms, such as, as top surgery, and that's, that means double mastectomy. And, you know, I'm a northerner, I call a spade a spade. <laughs> and I, 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 I'm quite defiant about using correct language. It's a really tricky area, particularly as I'm writing often about young people. So I have a, a kind of disclaimer or an explanation on the website about the way that I use language. And I'm very careful that when I'm talking about vulnerable young people, I try not to use pronouns at all, actually. That there's a real line that you have to sort of be, be aware of there, that I don't want to hurt young people who are vulnerable. But at the same time, my, my, what I'm writing about doesn't make sense if I use the obfuscating language of the ideology. So it's, it's a constant challenge, really, to use direct, clear language without being banned from Twitter, <laughs> let's say. Well, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, what it seems to me, one of the challenges in terms of feminist discourse in this area generally is how do you use words that make sense, but at the same time sort of are related enough to these new concepts, let's say, or these, like, for example, when you mentioned top surgery, that the people who use the euphemism top surgery understand what you're saying, as well as the people who, who don't, if that makes any sense. Like, how do you merge these two concepts into um, a language that is accessible almost to, to everyone who, who needs to, to find out what it is that you're saying and that sort of resource if that makes it's sense. really tricky so things for example like um uh, chest binding now uh, that means breast binding it's done by females it's binding the breasts so chest sort of covers up the fact who is doing it and and on which part of the body is they're doing it to and i tend to use both of those depending on what i'm saying or who who i'm communicating with so sometimes on twitter i've used chest binding because 
for example, during COVID, there was some bad advice about chest binding going out. And I wanted to reach the young people who are accessing that bad advice. So I use the term chest binding. And in other cases, when I'm writing a blog, I might I use breast binding. And if I'm talking to people behind the scenes, if I'm talking to policymakers, I will stress that it's breast binding. So you can use language in different food, but my main audience, the people that I'm speaking to, is parents and policymakers. So that includes teachers, professionals, parents. It's not young people per se, although I try to be respectful of young people. You know, one of the things that I hate about this is how children and young people, they are used as a political footballers, that they are used to further political rights. And I don't want to be doing the same from my side. I want to remain as neutral as I possibly can in looking at the issues without becoming political and overriding the sort of sensitivities that I feel you have to have towards children when you're working in this area. And towards parents, actually, because another thing is that I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever condemn a parent for the way that they choose to approach their child's gender dysphoria. I think it's an incredibly difficult and complicated area. There's a lot of really bad information out there and parents listen to the professionals and, 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 and I cannot judge, and I never have in my work, actually judged another parent for their, the choices they make. So, yes, there's, there's a lot of things working in this particular area. I think there are different issues to if you're a, a women's rights organisation that is campaigning for something very specific. There are different sensitivities when you're working with parents and young people and, and uh, children. I mean, certainly when you speak and when you write on this topic, that sense of like empathy and, and safeguarding really shine through. And I wondered a little bit on the subject of uh, women's rights. How does your knowledge of, of feminism inform your particular approach? I believe that if you're working in any area, you have to have a feminist perspective. If you don't, your 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 policies or your or your decisions are going to be male centric because men are the default sex. You have to have a feminist perspective, and in this area. You could say in, in some ways it's a feminist issue because we're seeing, because that, that huge rise in referrals to the Tavistock over the last decade, it's teenage girls who, who have driven that, that massive increase in referrals. I have four children. I have three boys and then my, my daughter is the youngest. I brought them up during an era when we had page three, dad's mags, the sort of um, environment that they were brought up in was it was very clear that my daughter was seeing images all around her in supermarkets and news agents that gave her an idea of what a woman was and it was a very sexualized objectified passive idea of, of what she would become as a woman whereas my boys even though the objectification of men was increasing in magazines you know men's health and six-pack and all of that it was increasing at that time but my boys had a much wider range of role models or representation of men, even in pictures, even on the TV, in films, than my daughter had. And so that uh, sort of sharpened my, my ideas about the importance of images and environments. And I did a lot of research at that time, and I was a member of the No More Page 3 campaign. In that work, I worked with Girl Guiding, I worked with young women I'd go to universities and I'd speak to young women so I'd hear the stories 
of how they experienced sexism and objectification today. And some really horrendous stories of how they were groped, how they had to protect themselves. I heard young women saying they would wear two pairs of tights when going out for the night. So I, I had a very hands-on experience of, of, of young women and how, how they were affected by the very objectifying sexist culture that they were growing up in. And the, of course, there's been the spread of internet online porn during this time as well. The smartphone, I think, came in in, in 2007. So that really informed me much more about the importance of representation and the issues that women face today. And of course, my daughter's 21 now, and I'm very, very aware of the messages that she gets from her culture. So this is a huge area of my work. It always has been the cultural messages that we send to children, as well as parenting and the, the actual language and words we use towards children and young people. It's the messages that the culture sends to them. And that message is, has become, over the last decade, more and more extreme in terms of women are sex objects and men rule the world. Even though women's rights you know, we've, we've gained such a lot in my lifetime. It seems that parallel to the rights we've gained has been this sort of pushback from media and represent, representation. It's in youth culture, music videos, etc. that it's gone the opposite way. It's almost like it's been a, a backlash against the gains that women have made uh, legally. And do you sort of see what's happening in terms of gender identity teaching and this kind of, let's say, transgender trend as being kind of part of that, given the fact that this is in some ways anchored in, in gender stereotyping? Yes, I do. So we've had two things going on. We've had, I, I've talked about the wider culture. We've also had the same thing going on in children's toys and children's marketing. That has become extremely gender stereotypes so you've got the pink world for girls and the blue world for boys and anyway I remember when Lego first introduced its Lego Friends series and how awful that was for my daughter who was suddenly patronized as you know it's it's not Lego anymore it's Playmobil it's <laughs> it, it's it, there's no building um skills required so when even Lego did that and Kinder Eggs, I don't know if you remember Kinder Eggs you used to get a you know a little car, a little doll, whatever. Now they're for girls or they're for boys, and the, the 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 Kinder Egg for girls is pink, the Kinder Egg for boys is blue. So during my work, the the other area that I really studied was parenting culture, and I I researched all the kind of parenting advice books. And to me, there were a lot of things that sort of dovetailed to create a really fertile ground for gender identity ideas to come in. And one of them was the parenting advice culture. Uh, it's a massive industry, and it tells parents that your child is born fully formed. They don't say this in as many words, but basically they have a fully formed self and it's the parent's job to facilitate the expression of that self. And that's why, you know, so parents tiptoe around their children, ask, giving them loads of choices, asking them their opinion on everything and children take part in decision making, etc. Oh, I think as a parent, it's good that we listen to children more <laughs> these days than, than when I was a child. 
but on the other hand this takes it further into giving your child the, the power or the responsibility which a child cannot carry and that's why children become unhappy and, and distressed they don't really want that power they want you to have it because then they feel secure but this idea that we must nurture our child's self-esteem constantly and listen to them and that's become we must agree with them so that staple now of parenting advice has developed alongside this idea that girls are pretty pink princesses and boys are tough macho heroes and world leaders and so you have the uh, the two ideas that uh, my my little boy is born loving princess costumes that is his authentic self because he's born with a fully intact self and because it's the girls who like the princess costumes and he's saying he's a girl therefore he is a girl because he knows who he is so this idea of my child knows who they are and they're just expressing that and i have to accept that because i want my child to be happy and of course a child does know who they are as a four-year-old or as a seven-year-old or as a 15-year-old or as a 17-year-old they don't know who they will be and they don't know you know they don't know who they are at age 20 25 20, 30 because the one certainty of childhood and adolescence is change it's a it's development it's growing up you know the, and we're treating children as if they are adults and this is the area that i think I, i'm most concerned with that we're treating children as if they have the life experience the cognitive development the understanding of adults and of course they don't and so to treat a child in that way is to misunderstand a child is to treat a child in ways that are very very inappropriate and harmful for a child in pediatrics one of the key mantras is children are not small adults that they are children they are you can't just transpose what you know from adult medicine onto children if that makes sense and i think that's probably especially true when it comes to something like this notion of gender dysphoria let's say which has become i think gender dysphoria has become gender identity and that fits perfectly into this model that parents have already been trained to believe so your child's true self is their gender identity and that's fully formed and intact and you must respect it and facilitate it that those are the that's a sort of you can transpose this idea very clearly onto the parenting advice that already exists it's just a part of it it's one manifestation of, of parenting advice that's already been out there and been reinforced for the, over the last decade it's interesting that these things have sort of come together in that way. I wanted to sort of turn towards your work specifically in schools, if that's okay, and what is being communicated about kind of gender identity and sex in, in sort of more formal teaching by activists. Yeah. Groups. And, and how do you think that's affecting especially girls in schools? So, uh, in schools, the idea of, of gender identity is being taught and has been taught as fact. And in fact, the, the idea of gender, it comes from queer theory. It's, it says that your biological sex is not real. It's just, it's not part, really part of you. It's assigned to you at birth by some force outside yourself. It's not you. It's not really you. 
but your gender identity is your authentic self. And that's a huge, a, a lot of children's literature focuses on being you, being yourself, being who you really are. A lot of anti-bullying material focuses on that as well. It's, it's, it's quite common that that is presented as something that's good and right and nobody must question that. So it, again, it feeds into pre-existing messages and it's been, it seems to have been accepted and taken hold by the teaching prof profession that this ideology, and it is an ideology, it's a set of ideas, it doesn't, it, it doesn't come down into the real world, it is a set of abstract ideas and interpretations, but it doesn't come down into the body. So it, sa it says that a woman or a man is an identity, a gender identity. In fact, you know, a woman is a living, breathing, flesh and blood, menstruating <laughs> human being, female human being, embodied. So, so this is a, an ideology that is dehumanized and disembodied from real life. It's a theory and, and, and immediately you look at it, it doesn't stand up. It depends on circular definitions. It depends on this concept of gender identity, which isn't backed up by any science. Although I would say that the term gender identity has been used and was used in child development texts as meaning the age when a child begins to understand which sex they are. So it was used in quite a, in a, just a neutral way, gender identity. And it's become the meaning now, I think we need to be really aware, the meaning of gender identity now is that every human being is born with this innate sense of being a man or a woman. And that is independent of their biological sex. It's, it's independent of their socialisation as boys or girls. We don't know where it exists. So that's what gender identity means. I think it's a term we need to stop using. It's been used as if it is a concrete, real thing, as sexual orientation is. So you see in schools materials now, bullying based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And that gender identity must be questioned. But because it's tacked on to gay and lesbian uh, bisexual rights, then it's, I think that's part of the reason we can't question it. So in schools, schools are now teaching children what they've already learned on the internet, from Tumblr, from Reddit, from YouTube videos, from social media platforms, that if you feel like a boy, you literally are a boy. And nobody must question that because that's your gender identity and that's your authentic self. And if anybody questions it, they want you dead or they want to erase you because they are not accepting who you really are. So that's hugely, it's, it's all very emotive language and, and very emotive concepts. But when you look at the facts, it doesn't hold water. It's, it's not true. It's not true that believing yourself to be a boy makes you a boy and the problem is that as children are learning this in school as fact they're also learning that anybody who doesn't agree with you is a bigot is a transphobe is is full of hate it's hate and so it's a huge social justice issue and of course adolescents are passionate about social justice issues and, and it taps into that as well. And being part of the gang, being accepted by your peer group is possibly the most fundamental, important thing of adolescence, that you are part, you, you are accepted and part of your peer group.
and, and adolescents are particularly susceptible to indoctrination, to grooming online, to being influenced. It's why we, we protect young people because they don't have the, no matter how mature they are or how sensible, they don't have the life experience and therefore they're very easy to exploit, which I think is, is what is going on. Children's very good qualities, their, their passion for justice and equality and uh, are being exploited to further political aims. And for girls in particular, I, I don't think it's a mystery why it's overwhelmingly girls who are being referred to the Tavistock. I think if you understand the cultural environment that girls are growing up in now, which is more extreme than ever before in terms of porn, in terms of selfies and Instagram and the impossible ideals of beauty, female beauty that girls are expected to live up to, the pressures on girls, pressures on boys have increased as well with programmes like Love Island and, and the beautiful male body. But, but for girls, it's, it's so extreme. And we, have, we do have the research for, for decades on how sexualisation and objectification affects the mental health of adolescent girls. We have the, the APA Task Force on the Sexualisation of Girls was 2007. Linda Papadopoulos produced a report for the government in 2010. And the effects have been documented in, in, in other re research studies in the work. Actually, Girl Guiding do a report every year, which reports the effects on girls. Uh, and it's all consistent, the results. It leads to uh, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, self-harming, eating disorders. And those are the same mental health issues that we're seeing in teenage girls being referred to the Tavistock. And of course, now they've got a new way of understanding themselves and a way that actually gives them a way out you know, we have all these ways that girls try and stop themselves becoming women by by starving themselves by, and, and now they have they've been presented with this way out actually you're really a boy you don't have to grow up to be a woman so it taps into all of the insecurities and issues and self-hatred body hatred that unfortunately is fairly common and increasing in, in adolescent girls, but we're not treating these girls as adolescent girls. We're not looking at their treatment within the framework of adolescent girls' mental health because that would be transphobic because they are, their gender identity is, is, is boys. So we can't do that. So the, the ideology itself prevents us from looking any closer at the ideology. Well, and it seems to be shutting down a lot of the um, medical curiosity as well, because it sounds to me like a lot of the clinicians involved in this are saying that they're somewhat dumbfounded or, or have no explanation as to why this particular pattern is happening. Yes, I hear from the Tavistock, we don't know why there's been such an increase. Maybe it's because trans people are more visible now. Maybe it's because young people know where they can go but that doesn't explain why it's so so overwhelmingly adolescent girls who are choosing this and not not older women who who think oh now I can transition it's adolescent girls and see that model in schools the gender identity model actually prevents any girl who is for, for whatever reason 
gender non-conforming and that would encompass the girls autistic girls very high, high risk um 35 to 48 percent refer to the Tavistock or autistic boys and girls to tend not to conform to stereotypes lesbians of course don't tend to conform to very feminine stereotypes and then there's the there's the geeky girls the science girls the what the the girls who are a bit different and don't fit in uh, for whatever reason it may be girls that have suffered previous trauma or you see a lot of kids from care homes the really really vulnerable cohort here and are the kids who are bullied and left out and so they feel they don't they're not accepted in the same sex peer group and what the what the gender identity model teaches them is that if they don't fit those stereotypes, they're, they're correct in their perception that they are wrong. In some way, they are wrong. They're not girls. They're not proper girls. And because the gender ideology model has set up a new binary, it hates, it hates the male-female binary. That's what we've got we must challenge. And it's set up a new binary, which is trans and cis. Uh, you're either transgender or you're cisgender or you are non-binary in the middle, which means you're neither male nor female. But so cisgender, if you say I'm a cisgender girl, you are saying I conform to stereotypes of femininity. I accept those. I, you know, that's, that's who I am. If you are a non-conforming girl, you cannot just say I'm a girl. You have to say I'm non-binary or I, I'm transmasculine or I'm somewhere else on this gender identity spectrum. So girl has become, the meaning of the word girl has become a feminine, somebody who embodies feminine stereotypes. And girls, if they're non-conforming in any way, have to identify out of girlhood altogether. So it's an absolute trap and and it does not allow for any difference or non-conformity. And it's brought into schools under the banner of diversity and inclusion. Those are two words that I've become very suspicious of. There's a, there's a whole bunch of words now that I, I don't like anymore. It's not about diversity. It kills diversity. It's, you know, it does not allow the really gender non-conforming girl to just call herself a girl proudly. In fact, you mustn't use the word girl. A lot of the teaching is stop using the words girls and boys and just use pupils or students. And, and we know that what that means in effect is erasure of the words girl and woman in language. And that's where we're getting menstruators and people who menstruate, pregnant people. And so children are learning, and this is from early years onwards. So there, I've counted 38 picture books for the early years and prime, primary years that are tra- trans non-binary picture books. So right from the very start, children are taught that some words might offend people and and some of those words are words like girl and no girl should be brought up to think that using the word girl is offensive in any way to anybody absolutely so but also like so, 38 books really who's publishing yes. all of this well, Jessica Kingsley Publishing has published a lot, but all of the, the you know, um, Routledge, all the, 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 the major publishers, they all need their, have, have their trans titles. But yes, so when, they, when these adolescents arrive at the Tavistock, they've all been, already been thoroughly conditioned into believing 
that they are really boys and they've been conditioned by the internet, by social media, by by the media, the BBC, the, uh, the, all of their peer group, their, their teachers, all of, all of the responsible adults in authority around them, the CAMS, therapists, everybody is affirming to her that she is really a boy because her gender identity overrides her biological sex. And she believes... And, and the Tavistock do not acknowledge this, but somehow this generation of children is presumed to exist in a cultural vacuum or, or out somehow outside their culture, that this generation uniquely is immune to the messages that the culture sends to them and everywhere they look <laughs> sends them the same message. But they're immune to that because they're special magical trans children and normal rules don't apply, that they're, they're somehow different. We don't need to look at child psychology and development. We don't need to look at adolescent development and the quest for, the, for identity in adolescence. We don't, we don't need all the information, all the knowledge built up over decades that we know about children, about adolescents, all thrown out of the window for this one cohort of children. But there is no acknowledgement of the cultural context within which so many girls, and I will keep saying boys as well, because I think that there's also been a massive increase in boys and they get overlooked because, because it's so much more for girls. But I think we're also seeing, it's been termed rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is unprecedented. Historically, for girls, it's unheard of. It's something completely new. But I think we're seeing that in boys as well. And the parents who contact me about boys, their sons are like 100%. They're either gay, they're autism spectrum, ADHD, OCD. So I think we're seeing a, a similar thing happening with boys. And we mustn't forget them. But of course, because it's, it's so overwhelming with girls, we, we, do, we do focus on, on, on the girls. But... Um, and I think probably also because perhaps it's not quite a course correction in, in a sense, but it's, it's kind of coming at this from a feminist lens. So you're trying to center the, the female experience in some of these discussions, perhaps. I don't know. I think, I, I mean, I, I'm aware that I talk about girls more than boys because it, the, the issue, but I try to balance that with Autistic kids, that's boys and girls, you know, there's lesbian and gay kids. I think it's happening more to lesbians after puberty in the the adolescent years. But I'm concerned about all kids. And what I do is I I bring a feminist lens to all kids, not just girls. You know, I I bring a feminist lens to everything I do so that it's balanced. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I try to to work and to, to acknowledge all the children who are getting caught up in this because they are vulnerable kids, all of them. Absolutely. And we are so thankful for the work that you do and and your voice and kind of the analysis that you bring to this. I wondered if we could go back a little bit to the the question of medical transition. And you sort of have kind of touched upon this already, but I think one of the questions was about consent and how children could possibly be able to give consent to various medical interventions for gender dysphoria or gender identity incongruence or 
whatever the the quasi medical term for this kind of notion of, of feeling like something about your identity isn't quite congruent with your biological sex if that makes any sense like can you actually yeah. could you talk to us a bit about how all these different stages in in transition so something like social transition is related to different steps in in kind of maybe medical transition and is it even possible okay, so to what, unpick this what's happened over the last five ten years is this massive increase in social transitions and you're seeing that in schools where a, a boy will come back to school as a girl and social transition is something completely new and this is based on affirmation and the affirmation approach tells a little boy you are a girl tells a girl you are a boy the affirmation approach was developed by activists it's not a clinical model it hasn't developed out of clinical research and clinical knowledge so it's a political approach it's it's an activist approach it's promoted as being kind you're accepting a child's gender identity in fact you're not you're giving the child misleading information that they are in fact the opposite sex which is where the language comes in where where it's it's it covers up what's what's really happening but it's promoted as kind the only kind thing to do and and, and who wouldn't want to be kind to a child in fact it's a very extreme psychological approach towards a child and the established approach was called watchful waiting watch and wait and it, and that approach would look at underlying factors it would look at the family the background of the child the environment the child was being brought up in whether that child had uh, suffered any previous trauma uh, sexual abuse is, was sort of recognized as as a possible cause and all of those underlying issues are now discounted and the child is simply affirmed if, if, if a boy says i'm a girl he's a girl and he will be affirmed by parents by teachers by clinical professionals that's very new we don't know if that is a safe approach there is no evidence to show the safety of that approach and therefore the justification for using that approach in schools and I think teachers do not realise that they are not doing, it's not a neutral act to affirm a child. It's an extreme act on one side. So watchful waiting was a neutral way of allowing a child essentially grow up. And we do know that around 80% of prepubertal children who develop sort of cross-sex identity will come to terms with their natal sex during puberty. And there's a very high possibility they will be gay or lesbian. The evidence and the research that we do have is about children who develop gender dysphoria in early childhood, age three or four, age or five. It's not much evidence. It's, mo it's based mostly on boys because at that time it was mostly boys being referred to gender identity clinics. And that's the evidence that shows us that most children do grow out of those feelings of discomfort with their own, with their own sex what we're seeing now is children developing gender dysphoria after ad adolescence so the other thing about the treatment is that the puberty blocker treatment was developed for that very small percentage of children who persisted in their gender dysphoria right throughout their childhoods reached the age of 16 as it was then and 
it was a, a kind of last resort treatment because they had been given help and support and some sort of investigation. But if they were still really, really insistent and at age 16, they'd be given puberty blockers. That was the model. That has turned into children who develop gender dysphoria in adolescence, particularly girls, and that is historically unprecedented. I think there were always a few boys, a very small minority of boys who developed gender dysphoria later but mostly it was before puberty. So we've got this whole new co cohort. We know nothing about them. We've got Lisa Lippmann's study of parental reports that suggested social contagion as, as one um, possible cause or reason. But we are giving a treatment that was designed for a completely different cohort. We're just transplanting that same treatment onto this cohort who cannot have be said to have persisted long-term in gender dysphoria. It's something that's emerged at adolescence. So that adds another layer of our lack of, of thought and, and care for this adolescent age group. So transgender, using that word, and the, transgender is not an explanation. Transgender you know, means a boy who thinks he's a girl. Then we call him a transgender girl. And that's where this is only in language is he a girl. So the only the only evidence we have, there have been a few studies and there was one from the Dutch team or Thomas Steensmer in 2013, which showed that social transition was the strongest predictor of persistence of gender dysphoria, which means the children who were socially transitioned were more likely to continue to have a transgender identity and to become transsexual as adults. And transsexual is an outcome. It's not a, we, you know, it's not something, we, we don't call prepubertal children gay or lesbian, but we do call them transgender. But the, these are all outcomes, they're adult outcomes, they're not fixed conditions of childhood. But once, of course, you socially transition, a, a, you know, if you're telling a boy he's a girl every day and all his peer group and everybody, all the trusted adults are saying the same, then it, it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I think we hear a lot about suicidal ideation of children and they must get their puberty blockers otherwise they're more likely to commit suicide this is something that i think of course really 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 scares parents any parent would be scared by that and, and there's no evidence to support that that if children are not affirmed and allowed to have puberty blockers that they're more likely to commit suicide by the way there is no evidence to support that contention but it does make me wonder whether if you're a little boy and you've started to say you're a girl, say from age four or age six, and then you've had the experience for years of being treated as a girl, as if you are really a girl in school, within your peer and you make your whole life based on this fallacy that you are completely disassociated from your body and, and you are really a girl. So if you imagine the little, this little boy and he he approaches puberty all the other girls are suddenly developing breasts and hips and they're starting menstruation and all of those issues that are particular to girls during their puberty and development he's not experiencing and his body is he's beginning to get facial hair and he's beginning to his voice might drop and and, and so how much does that create the uh, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation at the stage of puberty for a small child who doesn't yet understand 
what puberty is and what being a man is or what being a woman is. And so, of course, that child, the socially transitioned child, is, of course, desperate to get those puberty blockers and stop his body developing in a way that's completely different to how the girls are developing. And then once you're on puberty blockers, the, the research shows, and this is from all over the world, from the, from the Dutch, the US and the Tavistock, that almost 100% of children, once they go on to puberty blockers, don't come off the medical pathway they progress at age 16 to the to cross-sex hormones so you can see every stage of this process of begins with affirmation is uh, it create it creates the next stage and the need for the next stage so yes i think it's iatrogenic we're starting from a fallacy we're starting from the point where we're giving small children false information about who they are and then this leads to this cascade of created needs for, for medical treatment and of course we haven't done this to children before we don't know we don't know the effects of puberty blockers there's some really worrying research on puberty blockers used for precocious puberty which is when puberty begins at age five or six and that's mostly girls we've got research on the kind of the medication that's used is used for, for late stage prostate cancer in men and we've got we've got our research on that on the memory loss and the depression that it causes and cognitive effects in, in grown men the same drug is used to castrate sex offenders these are not smarties we're giving to children these are really powerful drugs and studies on sheep at the moment which, which are ongoing are showing really worrying irreversible effects on cognitive development and the idea that you can halt puberty and then just pick it up a few years later it's indication of how this ideology is completely divorced from reality and from embodied reality i think what the ideology does is that it places ideas in your head or feelings above the body and when you do that and and i think particularly for children and adolescents who are very vulnerable to adults actions then you are saying that the body is irrelevant and therefore once you say the body is irrelevant and the feelings in the head are real the real thing then you can abuse the body the body becomes something that, yes, you can change your body just as you can change your clothes. And when I look at uh, school's guidance, that's how it's presented. You know, you might want to express your gender identity by changing your clothes or changing your hairstyle or taking hormone blockers or cross-sex hormones. It's like you, you can have a designer body. And the dangerous thing, again, for any gender non-conforming child is that non-binary is not a safe space for you i think it might be useful i think for some children because having a gender identity has become the only way to show that you're a rebel or that you're non-conforming that you're different you're, you're you're not a conventional person and teenagers have always had their tribes that they go into in adolescence when identity development starts by identifying with a tribe where you all have the same rules you all like the same music you all wear the same clothes you all have the same haircuts so you follow the rules of the tribe and that's a really important step to developing your individual identity as an adult so now the only tribe that's sort of rebellious and non-conforming cool edgy is the gender identity tribe so you must be trans or non-binary you must have a gender identity 
But non-binary is not safe because the ideology says that you can change your body to match your personality. I mean, that's a, a, a ridiculous concept anyway. And of course, they don't say that directly. They don't say you must do that. But of course, every self-respecting teenager knows what it is to be true trans. And the kids who are really transgender are suicidal. Teenagers have learned that. And they are the ones who are on the hormones, taking the drugs. So if you know anything about teenage culture, you will know what a dangerous message this is to teenagers and how it will uh, exacerbate and, and teenagers will push themselves because of peer pressure into these extreme treatments. And nobody is saying stop. Nobody is saying, actually, it's impossible to change sex. Actually, do you really believe that? Nobody is stopping and, 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 and doing a reality check for these teenagers because that would be transphobic. Absolutely. And, and I think I have a bit of a bugbear. I have a few bugbears, actually. So one of them is the fact that a lot of times people seem to almost dismiss this non-binary thing as being, oh, it's just a bit of nothing. Oh, it's... And some people find it so difficult to grasp, perhaps, even that they just kind of dismiss it as just being like, okay, but this is... Like, they don't really see it as that serious of an issue. But actually, there are, you know particularly women who identify as non-binary who would go on quote-unquote a touch of testosterone to have some sort of virilization effect, I suppose, or have a double mastectomy or undergo various other kind of medical procedures or interventions. And there was recently a case in the Journal of Medical Ethics where there was the supposedly hypothetical case but it was apparently informed from, you know, actual clinical experience of some gender identity doctors in Australia, where there was an 18-year-old female um, who identified as non-binary from, the, I think it was from the age of six or something, who wanted to continue taking puberty blockers essentially indefinitely. So to me, the question of, of non-binary is needs to be viewed, I think, in the same lens as girls who identify as boys or boys who identify as girls. So I think it's all part and parcel of the same thing. And that one of them shouldn't necessarily be seen as more neutral or, or harmless compared to the others. I think that kids who are non-conforming and want to be part of the tribe I think non-binary can be a safe way. Actually, and, and I think particularly for girls, it can be a safe way to say, oh, I'm not a girl for a while because it's, it's, it's hard growing up and, and going through adolescence as a girl. I think it's hard for all teenagers. For some, it's more difficult than others, but I think girls have very specific issues that, that are, are difficult. So it may be a useful sort of bridging identity to get her through. But for me, it's the fact that she has to identify out of girlhood to be non-conforming. I mean, I think that's just wrong that we're teaching this. But the real danger is, as you say, girls will, in order to show that they're really non-binary, they'll start breastbinding. And the health issues of that are huge risks in breastbinding. 
and also it means that the girl can't breathe so she can't do sports she's really disabling herself i think the fact that she can't breathe is really symbolic and schools accept this schools accept breast binders to me that's a way it's a method of self-harm the trans lobby will say it it results in psychological benefits you feel better well all self-harm is for that reason all self-harm makes you feel better in in that sense that's that's the whole purpose of self-harm that it takes it it replaces your psychological pain with physical pain so you can say that about it about cutting but once she starts wearing breast binders they're so uncomfortable they they she can't breathe she's getting back problems and and then that leads on to double mastectomy and the number of times i've heard this story that you know i can't wait to get my double mastectomy so i'll stop going through this pain of wearing breast binders so the need for a double mastectomy has been created by the solution to the problem before but it's the fact that we're saying if you're non-binary you must have a non-binary body to match you are literally neither male nor female and therefore you need a neither male nor female body this is such a, I, I can't understand why schools are allowing this idea to get anywhere near schools. I think we should be doing a lot of education on teaching children to be critical thinkers, to understand the messages that they're getting from strangers on the internet, because we don't know who it is who's te- who are telling these girls on forums, oh yes, if you feel uncomfortable about being a girl, you're probably trans. You know, this message is coming everywhere. And yet we're not aware in this, again, in in this one area, we're not uh, aware, we're not protecting children from this celebration and promotion of medical treatment. So again, girls in particular are susceptible to social media messages and they're the biggest users of social media. So they are looking at YouTube videos that, uh, and this is mostly F2M, Uh, So females documenting their medical transition. So the effects of tea, the magical drug, testosterone, and how that's changing. They're developing um, facial hair. They're developing deeper voices. And the the videos where they're first displaying their double mastectomy scars have the biggest number of hits. And these YouTube videos have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers. Teenage girls thinking wow they're cool you know they look really cool they know what they're doing they're really happy and this is working for them and this will work for me and nobody no adult is coming in and saying wait a minute look you know what are you what message you know have a look at the messages you're getting here are these the experts they are treated by teenage girls as, as the experts but they're kids and there needs to be much more awareness of the influence on adolescents from these online sources. The other thing, of course, is what teenage girls are not told. And again, it's partly because the the medical professionals themselves don't have all the answers. We don't know all the effects. But taking testosterone is going to produce irreversible effects. A few months on testosterone and you will always have a beard. You will always have a deeper voice. You'll always have to shave. You'll have male pattern baldness. You are denying yourself the choice of when you know when you grow up and actually the, the teenage brain finishes its development around the mid-20s and that's the age that we're seeing detransitionism and again mostly young women or some young men detransitioning regretting their medical transition 
but left with permanent effects on their body. So especially I think the voice, I think the voice and it really needs to be understood as an intrinsic part. It needs to be seen as the same as a limb. If you stop, if you change the voice, it's a massive part of your personality. And it's the voice mostly, I think, that means if you've got a man's voice, you'll never be fully perceived as female again. And if you think I made a mistake and you want to change back, well, that's it. Sorry, you've done it. And the other thing about testosterone is that after a few years on testosterone, the effects of vaginal atrophy and uterine atrophy. So it leads to hysterectomy, possible oophorectomy, which is removal of the ovaries. And then you need synthetic estrogen just to keep you alive because your body's not producing it. So I think in, in those terms, the effects are more serious and more irreversible for girls than they are for boys who take estrogen. I think the dangerous time for boys is if they take puberty blockers at Tanner stage two, then they will be left with a, a, a toddler sized penis and then there won't be enough material to invert it to make a neo-vagina and therefore part of their bowel will have to be used and it's much more complicated and but all of these, this is the real world. This is, this is biological reality. Having gone through all that, you will still not be an adult member of the, you know, a little boy will not grow up to be an adult woman and a, and a, and a girl will not grow up to be an adult man. And that's simple fact. So the issue of kindness, I think, I mean, we know it's not actually kind to promote what's an illusion. And more than that, it's an illusion that children and I think adolescents cannot possibly understand, cannot possibly understand the, the full implications of this, the medical interventions that are presented to them as, oh, just, you know, it's just like changing your clothes. Something that I sometimes bang on about, I'm like, look, most adults don't even really seem to be able to, to grasp the differences in these concepts or unpick this critically if that makes sense because of the strength of how it's being sold to us through cultural messaging and so i don't understand how we're expecting young people and children to then approach this in any sort of fact-based neutral thing like someone needs to be the adult in the room here and i think that's something that you and, and your organization in particular really bring to the table i have to say and I wanted to maybe, if, we, if you don't mind us changing gears a little bit and talking about the Kira Bell case against GIDS, basically the Gender Identity Development Service at the Tavistock, because Transgender Trend intervened in that case, isn't that right? Yes, uh, it was a case brought by Sue Evans, who's an ex-Tavistock clinician. She was a whistleblower back in 2005, so she's been working on this for longer than any of us in, in this area. And then Kira Bell came up as, uh, as the claimant, and, and Mrs A, who is the parent of an autistic 15-year-old, who is on the waiting list for the Tavistock, and Mrs A doesn't want her daughter to be given the same treatment as Kira had. So this case has absolute global significance. It's the first case that's been brought of this nature and it will affect, it will have an impact around the world. It was a very specific case and the issue was, are children under the age of 18 able to give fully informed consent to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones? And I intervened or I applied to intervene because... The case was built on 
the evidence and the medical evidence and, and fantastic evidence from our side. But what I wanted to bring to it was the, was the cultural context, which is my area. And so everything that we've been talking about today, really, about what we know about adolescent girls, about the culture that adolescents are growing up in and the vulnerable children at that, that stage of, of identity development. So all of those issues I brought to the case and we had to present our full witness statement, um, full submission and our evidence bundle. So that included studies from going back years and evidence. And uh, I was really happy that the judge granted us permission on the basis of my submission and evidence and granted permission to intervene on the basis that it was potentially relevant to the case. And that's hugely significant because it is the area that nobody talks about, nobody, uh, including the Tavistock, are taking into account this cultural uh, environment that we as adults don't speak about. We as adults are silenced on this issue. We know how much this idea of gender identity is being pushed on the whole of society. And yet we're expecting children to not be influenced by this at all. So I was really, really happy that the judges, and there were three judges in the case, accepted this, that this was potentially relevant to the issue of whether a child under the age of 18 can give fully informed consent. That was huge, because it showed to me that the judges had an understanding or, or recognised you know, showed that there was there's some recognition there that that's potentially affects that ability to give informed consent. Now, I think that one one thing is that I don't think children can give fully informed consent to treatment that even the medical professionals don't know the results of, for a start, that the evidence is not there to support patient safety, essentially patient safety. So, so that's one reason, which was well covered by our team the other issue is that once they arrive at the Tavistock children are not given information that there are other ways of understanding sex and gender that this is only one idea and there are other ideas and theories so one is the feminist theory and the feminist theory is not given to teenage girls so even the theories of their own sex are withheld from them Unless you're giving children all of the information of, about around their understanding of themselves, the way they are conceptualising their difference, which the Tavistock are fully aware that children have been conditioned everywhere they look to believe this model of gender, unless they're given information that shows there are different ideas of gender and sex, then they're not being fully informed. And they're not making the decision based on fully informed information and access to information. Other information is being withheld. So that's my, my the, the, this is my, I think we talked at the beginning about the aims of transgender trend. And I think this was a really, really key aim. I mean, we, we look at the areas of education, health, and then law as it applies to both those areas. So the aim was to have a full open transparent debate about the ethics of this treatment 
and one of our original aims was also full investigation into the materials being taught in schools. I'm ticking, we had five aims, I'm ticking them off at the moment. It's fantastic, uh, just over the last few weeks. But the two areas are so intertwined and, and one of the reasons, so I produced the school's guide in 2018. And one of the reasons I, I focused on producing resources for schools is because I know that this is tackling the problem at source that there needs to be education, there needs to be education about ideas of gender and sex, there needs to be education, uh, encouragement of critical thinking of, of, of ideas. These materials should not be going into schools. These, these transgender books should not be going into primary schools because it's creating confusion. It's the teaching of confusion. It's the destabilising of knowledge and confusing children about sex. Who'd want to do that? I can't understand why that sort of material has been passed as appropriate for little children. But the two areas are inextricably linked. You teach children in school that every human being has a gender identity, that gender identity is what makes you a boy or a girl, not your biological sex, that's irrelevant. You indoctrinate children into that belief and then the results of it are this you know, as well as all the influence online, I'm not, I'm not sort of blaming schools, but the fact that, that all of the influence from society, from the culture, from online, from the media is now being re reinforced in schools as true and factual. And then we're surprised that there's such a rise of children who, you know, and, and particularly girls who believe that they literally are boys. Well, that's what we've taught them from early years onwards. So both of those areas work together. But my, you know, really, my concern is lots of concerns, but the actual medical treatment of children, I, I find it absolutely heartbreaking that we are actually stopping children going through puberty. That to me is such a critical stage of development, which well, it is, it's not just my view. It's a critical stage of development in life. You are changing from a child to an adult. I mean, how big is that? Well, you, there's, there's, there's no other stage of life where you're going through such a, an enormous and profound change. And to stop that from happening and suspend children in childhood and expect them still to make decisions, you know, to me is, is um, inconceivable that we would consider that to be a, a good idea. But it, what we're doing to children physically and psychologically is... We're producing children who, who enter adulthood without ever having gone through puberty because a girl who takes testosterone is not going to go through boy puberty as they think they are. The testosterone is going to change cosmetically the appearance of her body to be more male, but it's not puberty. It's not the sex hormones of her own sex that are producing all those significant changes all over the body, uh, not just secondary sex characteristics. So you're entering adulthood without having society. Our, our society has robbed you of the experience of going through puberty. And now that can be a really, really difficult time for lots of children. I'm not denying how hard it is. And we need to develop help and support for those children that actually is, you know, supports and empowers them and, and helps them, really takes this seriously and helps them get through that stage. But the fact is that nobody said it would be easy. Unfortunately, 
it's it's like when you're going to achieve something which is adulthood <laughs> full independent adulthood um it it doesn't necessarily you know it's not necessarily going to be an easy road to get there it can be a very rocky road it can be a really rocky road for some kids but what you achieve at the end of it it's part of actually what gives you the right to say right you know i'm an adult i've learned stuff i've made huge mistakes but i've learned and i've got to the other side and you know, I can take my place in the world. And to, to, to deny that for, for, for children, I find very upsetting that we would even consider doing that. Part of me is like, I mean, I don't think it's ever been easy, has it? I, I mean, isn't that why we, culturally in some places you have the whole notion of rites of passage or is it Bildungsroman or something? Like, like it's it's acknowledged that this is supposed to be a period of time of change and development and pain sometimes and difficulty so it's to me it's a strange kind of pathologization of something that's just that's always been seen as a just a natural stage of life yes i don't think it's meant to be easy because it's it's always the death of the child and the rebirth of the adult you know to recognize the significance of that and to accept that this might be really painful there are going to be times when this is this is a really rocky road you're on some children sail through it more easily than others others really go and have, have massive problems during adolescence and uh, and then emerge from them and it's it's a really really difficult time for parents to watch and to, to manage but it's it's a hugely important time, and if we can help children to navigate it and navigate and, and accept that it's not going to be all plain sailing, but to, to, to navigate all of the whirlpools and the rocks they come up against, I think that's the that would be helpful work from adults rather than saying, well, we can just we'll just stop your puberty then if it's going to be too hard. Kira Bell has been the most amazing, brave young woman because it is very hard for people to speak out when they regret decisions they made in their teenage years. It's, it's very exposing, but also detransitioners get so much abuse from the trans lobby because detransitioners, they're not part of the narrative, they're not the part of the story that they want broadcast. So Kirabel has, has done a really amazing thing. And whatever the result of the hearing, and that could be anything, it will depend on legal aspects. It's a legal case. It will depend on logistical aspects, actually, I think, about the family court, how it operates, all sorts of things. So it could be that, could be that we win, could be that we lose, could be that we get halfway and they say, well, under 16s can't fully consent. We don't know. Then there's no way of speculating what the result will be. It will be out in a few weeks. It could be a few months. We don't know that either. But I think the important thing about the hearing, no matter what the result is, will be the summing up by the judges. And it, it is the fact that this is the first case brought in the world on this issue of being able to give to give fully informed consent in, in in a judicial review and Kira was the first to do that and it will have repercussions around the world no matter what the result is it's hugely significant 
And it's taken one. And, and for me, when I started Transgender Trend, that was in 2015. I thought it would be 10 years before we'll see a case like that brought. And Kira's done it a lot earlier than I thought it would be done. So I want to acknowledge her role in changing things because it will change things no matter what the result is. Absolutely. She is one very brave woman. And it takes a, a huge amount of integrity, I think, as well to, yeah. to do that. So I hope um, whatever the outcome is, uh, like you say, it's been, there's been a demarcation, I think, and a very important message sent. And as you say, it's something that will have ripple effects, I think, internationally on this, on this issue. Yeah. But I wondered, actually, Stephanie, because I know I've, I've kept you for quite some time now. So I wondered if I'd quite like to ask you about, you know, the fact that now there's been this government announcements that basically that the relationships in sex education material in school needs to not do things like reinforce harmful gender stereotypes, has to be evidence-based. And they've come out against this born in the wrong body narrative. But it seems to me that even though your school's pack originally, I think you said it was 2018, I, I seem to recall that when that came out, it was described as, you know, almost like extremist, horrible propaganda material, even though it's you know, evidence-based and it's based on principles of safeguarding. And I think it was checked by lawyers and it's informed from, you know, teachers and obviously your experiences. And now following this kind of change in, I think it was September, it seems as though your packs, your material is, is the only material that actually meets government guidelines. So how What's your response to that? And, and how, how do you feel about it, actually? Uh, I'm very relieved, very glad. The guidance from the DFE was coming. It was promised quite a few months back when they first released the, the guidance for the relationships and sex education that they would produce a more detailed document. So that came out and it contains this passage. Very, very glad to see that. And yes, it does mean that I feel that my, my work is vindicated. My schools pack and all my schools resources are fully compliant with Department for Education guidance. So we're hoping this will become statutory guidance. It is guidance for the relationships and sex education curriculum, including PSHE, health education. But it does mean that you cannot have a policy of, you know, in other areas in the school that go against what the government is saying here, the danger of promoting gender stereotypes or suggesting that if a child doesn't uh, live up to the gender stereotypes for their sex, that it's, it's associated with a change of gender identity. I think that is key because if you look at all of the materials from the organisations going into schools, that's exactly what they are saying. And they do it in quite subtle ways, actually. They introduce, it, it's, I don't know if you remember the Denton's report on how to get sort of transgender ideology into society. And, you know, you go secretive ways and you hide it and you, you tack it onto something that's more popular. So I think 
This has been tapped on to anti-bullying work uh, for LGB children. That's how it started. Absolutely fair enough, you know. So, so the T has just been tacked on as if it's the same thing. And the transgender ideology, the whole ideology has been introduced into schools through these anti-bullying materials. So tack it on to anti-bullying. Who can complain about that? Who can raise an objection there? The other area that it's tacked on to is challenging gender stereotypes. And that's a huge issue in schools. And the NEU, as it was then, produced a report back. Oh, I can't remember what year it was, but really good, really, really good materials on, on challenging gender stereotypes. And all good schools will have been working on that for a long time and be really aware of not reinforcing very limiting gender stereotypes. I think most schools are really have been on that. And so this gender identity is, is introduced through that subject. So what you see in the school's guides is it's really important to so introduce gender stereotypes, what they are, how it's fine for a girl to dress how she pleases, be whoever she wants to know, and same with boys, and then talk about gender identity. So immediately after, so you're suggesting, you're not saying it directly, but you're suggesting that the only way to challenge gender stereotypes or it automatically means you change your gender identity. So you have to look quite carefully at how they present this, this work, but that is exactly what they're doing. And in fact, if you look at all the materials, all of the there's certainly the trans support organisations. They tend to say we support gender variant children, gender non-conforming children. And they use the terms gender variant, gender diverse, gender non-conforming with trans. So they use all of those terms interchangeably. And I think it's, it's so, so important that we make it clear that rejecting gender stereotypes, defying those stereotypes and being proud of yourself as a non-conforming girl or boy does not involve, does not mean you're transgender, does not mean you need to change your sex. So yes, our school's guide was, oh, it's, it's received so much defamation. Uh, Stonewall produced a statement saying it was deeply damaging right at the start. And in fact, when it came out, Stonewall did an awful lot to promote it. Um, it was covered in a lot of... <laughs> we were sort of quite grateful, really, because I brought it out in a, in a bit of a rush. I wanted to get it out before the EHRC National Guidance, which was due in March. So I got it out in February that year. I wanted to beat them to it uh, and just sort of throw a spanner in the works a bit on the, on the EHRC guidance. And, and I think Stonewall really, really helped to delay the HRC guidance because there was such a lot of publicity about our schools pack. And I, at the time, I just thought, well, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, Stonewall, you've got all sorts. You've got these different groups producing schools guidance. I can do the same. There's no law against it. But I think I committed the worst sin ever by doing that. And quite naively I thought I was releasing it during half term and I thought oh you know this is not going to even get onto mum's net all the parents will be away and it'll just die a death but never mind it, it's important I get it out and, and in fact it did over that half term week it was very quiet and then it exploded but one of the things that I think sort of keeps me going in a way when, when I when I think that 
things are, are too difficult do you know when I see what's happening and I think well around the country and I know this there's certain authorities that recommend our school schools pack there's schools that are using it and I, I really enjoy this that I can be sitting here feeling overwhelmed at how much work I've got to do but at the same time some school is using our school pack and very sensibly managing children which is what teachers are trained to do are experienced to do and should trust themselves in doing which is what the school pack uh, is, is all about really and that my work is having an impact all over the all over the country and nobody can do anything about that nobody can stop it happening so that 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 sort of gives me um you know i when i i, I remind myself of that and that gives me the motivation to carry on and I have to say thank you so much for carrying on with all of this work. I wondered if there was any, would you like to cover anything that I might have missed in terms of maybe the NHS review or anything like that? Yeah, just briefly, another really positive thing. I mean, there's been so many positive things recently. The, the BBC took mermaids off their help page, for example. The NHS changed their guidance. They, don't, they no longer say that puberty blockers are completely reversible and, and, and quite a few other significant changes on the NHS gender dysphoria pages. The other thing was the CAS review and the CAS review that has been going on this year was looking at hormone blockers and cross-sex hormones and the results of that review. So I'm on the uh, stakeholder list for the NHS gender identity services or you know and I have been and I actually responded and encouraged other people to respond to the service specification back in I think it was 2016. So I've been involved in that process or, or playing you know having an input into that and the initial review the results are coming out we've heard by the end of this year and that's really looking at the evidence, the basic medical evidence for puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And it's, it's now been announced there is a wider ranging review of the procedures and, and the, 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 the Tavistock Gender Identity Development Service. And that's going to be open and transparent. And uh, so I, I've been in contact with Hilary Cass uh, on that. And what my hope is that this review will look at the, the cultural context. It will listen to the voices of detransitioners, of parents, and parents who report that their children suddenly begin speaking from a script as if they've been indoctrinated into a cult. This is what I hear from parents a lot, that they listen to autistic people, to lesbian and gay adults, to women, to women who, like me, thought they were boys when they were children. And grew out of it and that sounds very easy it was a very rocky road for me and I know I hear this from women all the time I had those same problems you know when, when I was a child or when I was an adolescent and what has always sort of amazed me is that the gender identity services seem to be led and influenced by adult trans people who and often males who transitioned later in life who will say i wish i could have had puberty blockers and then i would pass as a woman now so it's all a very cosmetic sort of thing but i think that has a has had the influence on medical services as on society as a whole and in fact 
I think that the people influencing the treatment services for gender dysphoria should include the around 80% of adults who outgrew it. Because we have, I think, a very important voice in this. That yes, we felt we felt those feelings when we were children. We felt those feelings as women when we were adolescents or as lesbians or as autistic children or whatever the situation was. We felt exactly the same. Nothing happened. There was no treatment. Nobody took it seriously. We managed it. So our, uh, you know, how did, how did we manage it? What, what challenges did we face and how did we get through those challenges? That's the kind of information that needs to inform gender identity services. Not just the minority whose outcome was transsexual. So I'm, I am very optimistic that there is this open, transparent review. And again, that's something that we've called for right from the start. It needs to be open, it needs to be transparent. And uh, I really look forward to working with Hilary Cass and contributing to that review. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you so much for um, sharing all of this with us today. And I wanted to ask you just where where to next for Transgender Trend and also how can listeners uh, support you and your work? We're working now on resources for young people. And we're particularly focusing on autistic young people in the tween and teen years. So we've got a fantastic artist who's working with us and a fantastic writer. We've got our autism team. I think that's the next area we really need to to look at. So we'll have some pages up on the website, but we're also looking at a school guide and resources for young people themselves. And the plan is that we we are going to create a publishing or resource platform with a neutral name to publish these resources. My idea was that once the transgender trend is over, then we continue into produ- in, in producing really good resources for schools, for parents. My feeling is still an awful lot to do. There's a lot of damage to undo. And it's the resources, having alternative resources for, for parents and for teachers, I think is critical. Don't think that that is happening just yet. I think I've got a while to go. Uh, but as resources will not be focused on transgender, they will be focused on other things. We're uh, creating a, a sort of resource or, or publication arm in order to produce those resources and hopefully get them into schools and give good guidance and good resources for children themselves because I think they're lacking. And in particular, resources that challenge gender stereotypes, but at the same time are body positive. But, you know, like, like our Rachel Rooney and Jessica Alberg's book, My Body Is Me, that message should be in more resources in schools. And the, the, Gov- the Women in Equality Select Committee has just done a project on body positivity and low, low body self-esteem and I think it's a critical area, again, because of the culture our kids are growing up in, 
that really is a sort of body fascist culture where the, the ideals of the perfect body are, are pushed at girls in particular, but boys also, that, that needs to start in primary years. That it's, it's about what, what your body can do rather than what your body looks like. And so those kind of resources, I think, are really important. And that, so that's, what, that's the kind of work we're working towards. Plus, we will carry on our behind the scenes work uh, to influence policymakers in the areas of health and education. And, and how can listeners help support that sort of work? They can please take our resources into schools. Just, you know, if that's difficult, we will send them direct to the school. Have a look at the website, transgendertrend.com. Donations are hugely gratefully received always because that's how we keep going. We don't have any funding. We don't have any no official bodies fund us, the government doesn't fund us, we don't get any, any funding. So we really do rely on, on donations and there is a PayPal button on the right side of, a web, of the homepage of the website and there is a funding page under who we are, there's a funding page if you'd like to donate and make a regular donation to our bank account we will love you forever uh, but yes you're I, I always think this is a joint enterprise that everything we achieve has been achieved with the support the financial support of the donations from people you know who support us and I'm I really am genuinely so grateful for any amount that people can give us that's really really keeps us going and otherwise I think talk to people I, th- I think it's very difficult and I really acknowledge how hard it is to approach this subject if you're a parent at the, at the gates of the school you've got your community and a bit like teenagers we, we to be ostracized from your peer from your peer group when you depend on other parents to look after your child it's really really hard and, I, and but um I hear that and I, and I know from my own experience, if you start talking about it and maybe very carefully, you'll find that other people feel exactly the same and also don't speak out. So I throw that out as a challenge because I think parents can change the world. You look at mum's net, you know, parents really, really do have the power in their child's school or their child's local, you know, the local authority area. I've wor- I worked in a primary school for eight years. I know the power that parents have. Uh, and, and and as a parent myself, of course. So yes, just talk talk to your schools, talk to other parents, and every little helps. Doing a huge thing. Absolutely, and, and I think that's one of the things that's quite lovely about this particular. I think almost the one positive thing that I can see about this particular thing is the the way you can see so many different people doing their own small contribution or larger contribution or you know everyone's just sort of trying to pull whatever little bit of thread that they can to help this mess unravel if that makes any sense i i think there are so many people working behind the scenes doing what they can and we never hear of them but they're doing whatever it is that they can within their world within their community within their job and I feel grateful to all of them. I don't expect people to be able to speak out publicly. I know the risks of that. But uh, I think people are being very brave in their own ways, in their own lives, 
yeah. in lots of ways and we never we, we never hear about it absolutely. shout out to them yes absolutely um well thank you so much for um sharing your time and your insights and your feminist wisdom with us thank you so much for this conversation and for all of your kind of explanations of these really important points and you know for all of your work in this in this particular issue and um yeah thank you thank you very much thank you very much for inviting me on and for all your work at Philia. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you.